months and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty. Welcome to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz, and while I am an attorney, the Buzz Off show is not legal advice. Instead, it's a weekly look at all the buzz surrounding drones, autonomous vehicles, the Internet of Things, and all of the technology gadgets and gizmos in between. Join us each Wednesday on americaswebradio.com or find the Lawyer Liz podcast on your favorite podcast streaming service. Up for discussion this week, we have the Olympics special edition where we'll be talking drones, hacking, and 3D printing. Also, in a nod to Valentine's Day, looking at the latest tongue-in-cheek dating apps, or excuse me, the uh, matching service, but we'll also delve a little deeper into medical devices with our guest, Jay Radcliffe, who's a security researcher who, among other things, hacked his own insulin pump to highlight some of the issues with the security surrounding medical devices. So without much further ado, uh, giving quite a scare at London's city airport, the uh, World War II 500 kilogram uh, bomb was found in the Thames right off one of the runways. So the Royal Navy got to have a little bit of fun in that they had to briefly shut down the airport, drag the World War II bomb out to sea, and then detonate it off the coast of Essex. Talk about uh, not your average day at an airport. So uh, kudos to them for being able to take care of that quickly and safely. But if talking about safety, one thing we have highlighted and discussed on numerous Buzz Off shows is the way that malicious actors get your information and be it individual, personal, or company information through social engineering, finding out information about you, finding out clues. I mean, you've seen it in the movies where the spy says, oh, I know the password. It's going to be their dog's name, their first elementary school, or their mother's maiden name. Well, a dating site that hopefully was intended as a tongue-in-cheek, but Words of heart said they would pair you with your true love based on common passwords. So when you entered the dating site, you had to give them a password and using the database, they matched you with love matches if you had the same password. And I say hopefully tongue in cheek because it got a little bit of a ribbing. Okay. A big ribbing on Twitter and other social media networks highlighting that this is just a bad idea. So much so that the uh, website later changed and added a disclaimer that uh, warning, do not use your real passwords, but a treasure trove nonetheless of habits and at the very least passwords folks would find 
funny. Well, when it comes to malicious disruptions and hacking, the Olympics unfortunately took center stage with the opening ceremonies and what has been dubbed by some as the Olympic destroyer, more likely initial and analysis indicates intended an embarrassment and disruption, but the Olympic destroyer disrupted internet access, the telecast, the broadcasting drones, the websites, and even prohibited spectators from printing their tickets. It shut down servers, Wi-Fi, and other television network access during the Olympics on the opening ceremonies on Friday and have no fear though it was reportedly fixed and everything back up to speed on Sunday. So what does that mean? Well, it stopped short of really harming the servers. Instead, it just shut down the systems targeting the PyeongChang2018.com words, phrases, websites, but One of the biggest disappointments that it did was it shut down potentially Intel's drone swarm that anyone who is watching that record breaking uh, swarm light show during the broadcast on TV, you were actually watching a film footage from a practice a few nights before because one, you know, Intel said that there was a technical issue, but speculation is depending on how the drones were communicating in the swarm. And for other safety concerns, they may have grounded the show that night. So uh, thanks to Cisco's Talos Group for a great write-up. If you want more information on exactly what was going on with that, go to their blog. But uh, also have no fear Two days prior, uh, Russia entered or issued a statement that they had no intention of disrupting the games or the spirit of the games. So kind of a little sketchy. Attribution is hard, whether it was Russia, someone else, but it's a little suspicious when you issue a denial two days ahead of the event or the issue. But Kudos to Intel, nonetheless, for their drone swarm, because what they ended up doing was setting a Guinness World Record for number of drones simultaneously being flown with 1,218 of the Shooting Star UAS, breaking their prior record set in Germany of 500 drones that were flying in 2016. So an amazing light display, similar in some respects to what Intel is proposing for Disney's or Disney parks, which funny side note in a presentation for a drone conference a while ago, one of the Intel uh, execs, it, Acknowledge that inevitably on the Disney shows, they end up losing a drone or two. Can't recall if it was every week, every show, but talk about a souvenir to bring home from Disney, uh, finding one of their Intel swarming drones. But kudos to them. Looking forward to it. Uh, one 
other way technology has really hit the Olympics itself is 3D printing. The U.S. luge team uh, brought in Stratasys and said, hey, let's use 3D printing to take our sled design to the next level. We've seen 3D printing in uh, NASCAR and racing where parts for the cars can be 3D printed in other places, but it's fun to see it also entering the Olympics. And Intel's drone swarm was not the only place we saw drones during the Olympics. And announcing all of their security measures, one of the ways that drones are being flown are as drone-catching drones. So as part of the security measures and monitoring the skies over the games, should a unauthorized drone be spotted, the security teams will release a drone that casts a net to catch other drones or the nefarious drone, which could, I imagine, lead to some humorous results because one of the ways you've seen or we're watching drones incorporated into the broadcasting, not just through Intel, but the Olympic Broadcasting Service, the IOC operates uh, cameras instead of having a hundred camera television cameras trying to get the best vantage points during the games or from a different space because that blocks the view. It perhaps offers a disruption to downhill skiers when you, you know, safety concerns. But so the IOC has their Olympic Broadcasting Service, which provides a feed to other broadcasters and Beginning in 2016 at the Rio Games, drones were incorporated into the IOC's broadcasting service. Well, when we see the broadcasting service now, uh, one of the things that we're uh, enjoying are these amazing aerial views of what's going on from the slopes or from the games. Well, what happens when the drone catching drone casts out its net and it miss it misses the intended drone and then falls on the crowd or somehow other otherwise disrupts the athletes uh, one of the other things that the uh, security measures that are being taken are the uh, security teams are being trained to shoot and they've been practicing shooting drones out of the sky if the cast or if the net misses the nefarious or malicious drone so i'm just imagining a circus like uh, kind of keystone cops reaction to these drones which will be interesting to see hopefully they do not disrupt the broadcast of the drones flying don't mistake a drone capturing footage but also that they don't disrupt the spectators themselves but as more and more as drones proliferate the skies and concerns over safety and security issues anticipate we'll see these sort of measures uh, more frequently and uh, integrating the authorized drones with the unauthorized drones will become a lot more interesting. Well, one thing that uh, when we talk about integrating technology, if you watch the Super Bowl, and we had hinted at this before, but Alexa, 
commercial with Rebel Wilson, Cardi B, Anthony Hopkins, among others, Gordon Ramsay, that answered the question, what if Alexa lost her voice? How would uh, Amazon respond? And in this case, bringing celebrities, well, the word Alexa, typically a trigger or a keyword, was uttered 10 times during the commercial, but thanks to 2014 patented technology called Audible Command Filtering, the Alexa did not, uh, the utterance of Alexa did not trigger the home devices. Instead, uh, the technology basically muted or told them uh, Command Filtering don't go off, which is a great feature to see as more of these devices enter the workplace, the homes, and you don't want to inadvertently order something or somehow trigger a search and a recording of a conversation that was not intended. But when we start talking about unintended and security, medical devices and transitioning to that, looking at how can not just fun devices for the home, but looking at fun devices or life-saving devices. How can we secure those? So we'll welcome Jay Radcliffe coming in right after this break. You're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. Field books. There is a difference, and the difference is made in the USA by family-owned and operated Bogside Publishing in New Hampshire. For over 38 years, the family business has produced the finest, most durable, rain-resistant, and most affordable field books in the land surveying and engineering industry. Demand the best from your supplier, Bogside Publishing Field Books. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concourse, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz. Catch us each Wednesday from 2 to 3 in the afternoon Eastern on AmericasWebRadio.com. And as teased a little bit before the break, once again, 2018 is going to be, and this time it will be true, the year of Medical devices. It's only been promised since 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018. It's going to happen. Uh, but it does highlight from ransomware attacks to outdated systems. But as we all start depending more and more upon these connected devices and for convenience, but as well as life-saving, then what happens and how do we ensure that they're secure? So bringing in, I'd say the grandfather, but one of the you know, old school researchers in this area. I mean, he hacked his own device. But Jay Radcliffe, thanks for joining the show this week. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. 
Well, and for folks who've been following along, I mean, you have been working in this, I mean, you've been in information security and research for, well, we won't do quite all the math, but let's just say you're well-versed in the ins and outs, but what was it, seven years ago, you had some groundbreaking research. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, as a type 1 diabetic, um, I have access to a lot of devices that not many people do. And one of them is an insulin pump. And this insulin pump is something that you wear um, that gives you medicine um, sometimes every minute to kind of keep you alive and to keep you healthy. So it's, you know, pretty vital. Absolutely. You know, uh, to say that I depend depended upon an insulin pump to keep me alive is, is a very true statement. Well, and, you know, people talk about doxing and different things, you know, exposing others to vulnerabilities. In this case, I mean, you took the device that was providing life-saving and, you know, medical care, and you took it apart. That's, yeah. that's a pretty bold move. And But thank you for taking that risk and doing that. But how does one sit around and go, you know, you know what? I wonder if <laughs> what would happen if I did this. Well, it's actually a little bit longer of a story than that. Um, I was at uh, the DEF CON conference several years beforehand, um, and uh, we were watching a presentation that Joe Grand and some of his people were doing on taking apart a parking meter that used smart cards. Great presentation, really got into the details of taking these devices apart and looking at their security flaws. And a friend of mine I was sitting with elbowed me and said, hey, you should do that with your insulin pump. So it really was a here, hold my beer kind of moment? Um, it took a couple years. I kind of chuckled at the time and said, yeah, sure, I definitely should do that. And then uh, I thought about it and I said, well... I have quite a bit of experience with radio communications. I had been a ham radio operator since I was a a child, actually. And I knew a lot about these devices and how they kept people alive. And kind of the merging of those two, um, you know, fields of knowledge led me to say, well, let me take a look at the radio communication of these devices and see if it's actually secure. Well, and I mean... The idea that that is an area of vulnerability where someone could hack in. I mean, Dick Cheney had his, what was it, pacemaker uh, altered to harden it against potential radio frequency, like, attacks. I mean, why hadn't this been done already? I think there are some that had theorized it at that point, but I really think that one of the things that held us back and continues to hold us back is... I can't just run up to Best Buy and buy a medical device and start researching it like I could, like a connected, like a lot of the Internet of Things devices that you can just go out to the store and buy. You have to have a prescription, and these devices tend to be really expensive. And I think that lack of access is really one of the things that um, kind of slows down research in this this area. But 
Well, what, I was going to say, what's the adage? Uh, security through obscurity? That's a that's a big part of it. But, I mean, these insulin pumps can run anywhere between $5,000 and $11,000. And you have to have a prescription. You have to be a diabetic to get one. So not only are they cost prohibitive to do research on, but they're actually restricted by law by the FDA and who can get access to these types of devices. Which raises an interesting and a heartwarming aspect of your research. I mean, you had, you were able to get access to not only just your device, but perhaps share how you, how you ended up, I call it an extra device. Yeah. Um, so because of the research that I did in 2011, um, I've had other diabetics contact me and, and really offer their old devices for me to look at. And in one case, I had, uh, a spouse contact me and his wife had passed away from diabetic complications and she was a social worker and and he this guy felt very strongly that his wife would want this device to be researched and to to make things safer and uh he mailed it to me and said I don't want you to pay me for it or anything I just want you to keep doing great work and keep doing research to to make people and other diabetics safer and I mean to get to the hallmark moment, but that must be so rewarding as a researcher to know that one people are paying attention, but that you really are adding a benefit to the community of folks just as you who depend on these devices. Absolutely. I, I thought this would just be a little talk that I would give at, at security conferences and it would be kind of this, this little thing. And it's really turned out to be a, a much, much larger thing. And it, it's, it's humbling every time somebody comes up to me and says that they've heard of my research or that they're inspired by that research or, you know, that they have a, a friend or relative that has diabetes and, and they really think that this research is important. I, I'm just, I'm still amazed that, that people, uh, you know, are, are moved by it. Well, I mean, admittedly, I have given presentations solely for the purpose of the T-shirt uh, or the free conference ticket. I feel humbled that perhaps I should do better. Uh, so thank you for that. And really, it's not just the resource that you did, but kind of the approach. So walk us through a little bit. How did you approach this problem? You've got the device. You've watched people uh, hack into other things at these conferences, be it the meters to, I mean, 2011, that was what, right about the time of the jackpotting of ATMs and things. How did you go from concept to, you know, for the laughs to actually implementing it? some significant research. Yeah, well, I um knowing that I was going to be, you know, a kind of very inspired was very inspired by the medical scene and and very traditional sciences. I used what I learned in high school about the scientific method, which sounds sounds kind of corny, but I really followed that process of, you know, first kind of looking and doing my research and my background research on what the device does and how it works and how it's powered all of these different concepts and things. And then I developed a hypothesis. I said, I don't think that 
the communication between this device and its remote controller is encrypted. That was my hypothesis. And then I went about testing that hypothesis to make sure to see if it was true or not. And, you know, through that process of experimentation and trying to test and validate if that thesis, you know, that hypothesis thesis was true or not is how I came to my conclusion of, you know, this device is, is using unsecured communications. Well, and first of all, I know high school and middle school science fair teachers are rejoicing everywhere going, see, see, there's a method to our madness. But uh, more so, what does that mean? So the encryption element of how the device and is communicating with you know, other kind of the controls, what does that mean? actually mean well what it means is if you kind of think of i'll use an example of like your car your car has a remote a lot of people have remote starters or remote unlock buttons on their car well if you just went outside and click the unlock button let's say in a crowded parking lot you wouldn't want all the cars to unlock you would want only the one car tied to that key to unlock And the same thing goes with the communication with these medical devices. If I get the remote control out for my medical device and I click the button to give myself medicine, I don't want everybody that's got that medical device to get the medicine. I just want me to get it. Well, I mean, because as you point out, you're not living and going through things in a vacuum. There are other people around who may have the same device, but does it translate to other devices as well so that perhaps you're sending the signal for your device but you don't want it to trigger a pacemaker or something else nearby are there other not just for the insulin pumps but are other you know medicine mechanism delivery mechanisms operating on the same uh, channels or frequencies yes there are um they are uh working on those same frequencies and most of them use a proprietary or secret quote unquote secret communication protocol um that's not standard mm-hmm. so back in 2011 when i did my research almost all medical devices used a proprietary kind of obscure communication protocol And that's one of the things that I did in my research is I reverse engineered that protocol. And then I figured out, oh, it's using the serial number for the device as, as kind of how to communicate with it. And there was, it was transmitting that without any protection. So if I was a bad guy or I was a curious researcher, I would, I could, (laughs) I could listen on the same frequency and I could get the, the serial number for the device and then i could do something which is what i demonstrated uh on stage at black hat which is i could take that information and then i could send my own commands to the to the insulin pump into the medical device and i could say turn off don't deliver any more medicine or i could do something more sinister which is say give him 10 times the amount of medicine that he's supposed to have um i mean that's the stuff of spy movies. It is. It's really, it, you know, when you think about it, it is really, really scary. The potential of uh, of damage that you could do with kind of unsecured communication like that. And, I mean, how far away would someone have to be at the time uh, to 
execute such nefarious commands. That's one of the saving graces of these devices right now is that a lot of them live in their own ecosphere. So you have to be within 50 feet of the person to be able to communicate with their device. But I will say that the new devices that are coming out are to do your cell phone. So as you can imagine, that kind of opens up a world of possibilities as far as what you might hear or what you could communicate with when it comes to that. Uh, wow. And so if I wasn't already nervous, now I'm that much more <laughs> nervous because it raises the question of, you know, you introduced all of this in 2011 and what has changed and kind of where are we now? So certainly things will pick back up with right after this commercial break. You're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. Bogside Publishing. For over 38 years, this family-owned New Hampshire business has manufactured the most durable, rain-resistant, and most affordable made-in-the-USA field books for the land surveying and engineering industry. And Bogside Publishing is still doing it today. Demand Bogside Field Books from your supplier or go to bogsidepublishing.com for a list of exclusive Bogside dealers. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. Talking today with Jay Radcliffe, who for, we'd say, at least seven years publicly, but even before that, has been doing research into medical devices, and not just any old medical devices, but in his case, the insulin pump that is helping him. But Jay... Welcome back, and everyone, welcome back from the commercial break. And we were highlighting before how you got this idea and how you had identified some of the vulnerabilities in the device communications. And uh, you weren't making it sound like it's getting better. Well, I think that it's in some ways it's getting better, and in some ways it's getting a little bit more scary. As these devices become more ingrained in our culture, they start communicating instead of just with the remote, but with our cellular devices as well. I've seen several cellular, I've seen several devices tied to cell phones so that way I can upload data to the cloud. And then you can get notifications like if you're a parent or a caregiver for, you know, your patient, you can get that information that you need to keep them safe. Which is really, yeah, which is really exciting. But at the same time, now we've got cloud communication and Bluetooth communication and all these other things, which we don't know how secure they are. Well, in some cases, we know they're not. I mean, and if nothing else, I may not want everyone around me to know what my, you know, what my medication needs are at any given time. 
Exactly. One of the things that I talk about when I talk about this particular topic is, I mean, everybody has a cell phone. And I'm sure none of us have ever dropped calls or had to reboot our <laughs> cell phone or anything like that, right? So now in this next kind of generation of medical devices, we're going to be depending upon these devices to keep grandma, maybe our children healthy and alive. And do, you know, you have to think, do you right now have enough confidence in the in the platform of your cell phone to, uh, to say, I trust this to keep my loved ones alive. That's a scary question to answer. Well, and too, you think of, I mean, I can't think how many times I thought I sent a text or um, an email and through some glitch along the way, it didn't get there. Or maybe I didn't hit send or something. And so to think that it's not just, a random email of, hey, can you pick up milk and eggs on the way home? But it's a, a message to my doctor that I, you know, giving them feedback on, or my caregiver that, hey, she's using a lot more of, you know, needing insulin a lot more frequently, signal something may be going on, put a note, or something is going horribly wrong, and it just doesn't get there. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think that I'm kind of conflicted about it because I think that it's really exciting, like the possibilities of being able to, you know, have that type of interactive care and really get to that level of detail of looking at the data. But on the other hand, I see all these cloud breaches and I see my personal data in, in the financial world being put at risk all the time with my credit card numbers and my social security numbers. And now I see the medical world going in that direction. And I, I pause and I go, it's really exciting. But at the same time, it's really kind of scary too. Well, in one of the things too, you highlighted in, we've seen this proliferation, proliferation of um, different uh, with not only the breaches but people reporting these vulnerabilities and people paying attention to this but have you seen that flow to the medical devices well like how do you replicate hey i found an issue device manufacturer i think you should know about it but trust my research? I mean, how does, how does that conversation flow? Well, in, in 2011, it didn't flow very well at all. Um, <laughs> the, the device manufacturer had a really hard time kind of understanding what the research that I was, I was doing, that I was doing it for good purposes, not for nefarious purposes. I mean, it was one of the first times we had seen something like that. So there was a lot of, I don't know how to deal with this kind of shock. Now, Two years, like, and how to also say, and how trusting were they of? I mean, it, you took the scientific method approach so that you could basically, you had documented it and could replicate it. Was that a challenge for them as well? Um, I think it was. Uh, you know, it was just totally new and off the wall to them. I mean, this was just something that they had never expected. And when they were faced with it, especially with the immediate attention it got, they just were overwhelmed and unprepared for it. Well, and how have you found that? Is it still the same or is it, you know, have they grown up a little bit or 
the community evolved enough to where it's easier to report if not get immediate action on it. Yeah, I, th- I think that two critical things kind of happened. One of the things that's happened is a lot of people in our community um, worked really hard at working with the government and getting uh, an exemption put in place in the DMCA so that way you could do medical device research uh, and check the security of medical devices without the risk of maybe going to jail. And I think that that really opened up the doors quite a bit. It was a big concern of mine when I did the research in 2011. And I wanted to make sure that researchers had the ability to safely and legally do this type of research without without kind of putting uh, even more at risk. Now, did this exemption in the DMCA exist at the time you started doing your research? It most definitely did not. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, one of the things that I had done is that I had gone to the EFF and I said, I need you to help me kind of understand where the laws are and when, where the boundaries need to be on this research. Because once you open the box, you can't put it back to get, like, you can't, you can't close up the box and say, well, I didn't go in that area. So I needed to really understand what the laws were and draw some boundaries to make sure that I wouldn't get in trouble and that I didn't uh, violate any, any laws at the time. Well, that highlights the importance of the uh, organizations such as the EFF, that you have these resources as a security researcher. I mean, the companies have, corporations have entire law firms that will gladly research and do what they need, but to be able to go to the EFF and explain, here's what I want to do, and were they gung ho and like, yes, let's fight this battle, or did it require some research? Did they need to get up to speed. Uh, they, you know, they needed to get up to speed a little bit. Uh, they were really intrigued that I was looking at medical devices. That was something that, you know, was new to them, and and they knew that could be fraught with a lot of legal danger. I mean, um, the company that I, I was doing, the device was made by a company called Medtronic, which is a, a massive, huge, multi-billion dollar company um, that had way more legal power than than I could muster any day of the week. Um, so I was really kind of scared of, you know, the potential of, uh, you know, lawyers coming after me and, and making sure that I was in the right, I wanted to make sure that I was in the right legally so that way when the time did come that i could stand confidently and say i know that i am in the right you know i've consulted with with legal experts and i there was a lot of research that i couldn't do because they said this is kind of a gray area and i said i'm not interested in the gray areas (laughs) Um, i'm interested in the areas that are completely clear and that is where i stuck with most of my research and i i would say that probably at that time in 2011, the DMCA probably restricted over half of the research ground that I wanted to pursue. And, you know, on the one hand, thank you for doing that. And thank you to the efforts of the EFF and others, because thanks to paying attention, as we've talked about on the show before, in other contexts, getting those Digital Millennium Copyright Act exemptions and kind of the safe harbors exceptions so that you can look at medical devices, that uh, you can look at car, you know, vulnerabilities in cars, that it carves it out so long as you, 
it has legitimate research purpose, etc. So thank you for being willing to take, take that leap of faith uh, and go down and, and do it correctly. Uh, have you found that the attitudes or you know, as you go back and look at aspects of the research, have you been willing to go and fill in some of those gaps that you had noted seven years ago and said, you know, I really wanted to look at this. Now I have time to do so. Or have others stepped in and uh, kind of carried carried it a little bit further down the trail? Well, one of the uh, one of the disadvantages of uh, <laughs> one of the disadvantages of doing work on your own medical device is. At- when you're done, done with the research, sometimes the device doesn't work as well anymore. Um, so oh, no. <laughs> after doing the research in 2011, I got a new insulin pump. And that insulin pump was a different manufacturer and different brand um, of insulin pump. Now, was that planned or just a, a unlikely coincidence or something? It's more on the side of unlikely coincidence. Like the insurance company and Kurt, like, you know how insurance companies are where they're like, we would, pr- we're, we're, we would, prefer you to get this brand because we we cover this brand at a higher percentage of rate or you know, whatever it is um but yeah i ended up with a a, a product uh, made by johnson and johnson called the animus ping um and i'm sure you won't be surprised but i i did research on that device as well <laughs> um and i found there to be flaws and we Rapid7, when I was there, and myself and Johnson & Johnson published those vulnerabilities and uh, in, in late 2016 um, to make sure that patients stayed safe and, and um, you know, made sure that they were comfortable with what was occurring with it. Well, and kudos to Johnson & Johnson. I just, I'm still picturing Medtronic going, yeah, we'll provide devices, except for that Jay Radcliffe guy. Uh, no, he needs to stay away from us. Yeah, that's, that's probably what happened. Like, uh, we would prefer him not to have another one. Uh, or the J cost is <laughs> 10 times, three times, right. you know, uh, do that. Well, in really where, so what's kind of, what's next? Are you still using the same Johnson Johnson device? What's interesting is my doctor and I, for medical reasons, decided to move away from insulin pumps. And I actually take my medicine with manual injections now. So I'm on a, I'm on a therapy known as multiple daily injections. So every time I eat, I give myself a shot. Oh, that kudos to you for you being able to tackle that and get through but it is kind of funny because all right now how do you look at the delivery mechanism or the other blood sugar tracking devices really all right what's next bring it on i do i'm always curious to see what the new technologies are and i i start thinking about what weaknesses that i would look for as a patient and as a researcher it's just a great perspective that we'll have to kind of pick up after this next commercial break and really delve into so what's next and challenges that you see ahead for the industry and kind of how do you continue growing on this. But you're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare. 
Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back once again to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. Catch us each Wednesday from 2 to 3 Eastern on AmericasWebRadio.com or the Lawyer Liz podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, your favorite favorite podcast streaming service. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz, chatting today with Jay Radcliffe. And Jay, now that uh, Medtronic said... There's the J pricing. Apparently, Johnson and Johnson has booted you off, uh, and you and your doctor have come up with a new a new plan. And I kid, uh, but where does that leave research into medical devices? I mean, it's been seven years since you first started causing trouble, and as you noted, we're not necessarily further along. What can we do better? Well, I think that we've already started to, I've seen some real progress um, in the industry of medical devices. Um, you know, one of the things that I kind of want to commend is that the FDA has done a really good job um, since 2011 of coming out with guidance and helping device manufacturers figure out what they need to do and that there are some requirements of cybersecurity in these devices and these these medical devices that people and hospitals and doctors depend on. Um, So I've seen some progress in that arena, and I've seen a lot of medical device manufacturers um, starting to get up to speed on using things like encryption, um, for example, um, with their communication and having a, a vulnerability intake process and a vulnerability management process and a patching process. Um, well, and I think you you hit 
Oh, one of the key things is we saw last year with all of the ransomware and stuff. You have these legacy systems in healthcare that are trying to, you know, play nicely with the latest and greatest systems, and patching and updates is a huge issue. Yeah, it is, especially in the medical world. Um, for the longest time, medical device vendors. Uh, we're under the impression that even patching the Windows operating system on some of these medical devices would somehow make them unfit for use, and the, they would have to go through the FDA approval process again. Um, and, and that's one of the things that I was kind of alluding to just a moment ago, is that the FDA has come out and really made it very clear that there is a responsibility on the manufacturer's side, but also on the operator's side, to make sure that these devices, especially in their operating systems, are patched and tried to keep up to date to make sure they're secure. Well, and, you know, some of that does require connectivity or, you know, you don't want to have to necessarily bring back, you know, bring your device back in every month or for, what is it, Microsoft Patch Tuesdays. (laughs) It, It just doesn't make sense. And that's part of the problem with some of the we've seen in uh, equipment uh, in the farming context is you know you have farmers who when the equipment goes down because it needs a patch or it has something and then they have to wait for the manufacturer to come out to the middle of the field that doesn't work i mean that's cumbersome in agriculture but when we're talking about your pacemaker or your insulin pump that's just unworkable yeah it's definitely a struggle um you know and a lot of these devices especially current devices and, and and like you mentioned the legacy devices they don't even have the ability to be patched even if the manufacturer did want to patch them these devices were built and hard-coded so you know that's not like your your cell phone where you know it can push down a patch over the air or you know through through your network cable there's no usb or network you know port on on a on an insulin pump or on your chest for a pacemaker at least not no. yet. Uh, eventually, I have a feeling we're all going to be, was it uh, Ghost in the Shell just pl- or The Matrix? Just plug us in uh, each night and we'll recharge. But until then, we need a little bit better of a fix, it seems. That's true. And, and you know, that's one of the considerations that makes these this world a little bit different than, you know, a lot of the other IoT areas. Getting access to your pacemaker, you know, and, and actually doing surgery on somebody is a very high risk thing. Um, where, you know, most of the time when we talk about patching, you know, our phones or, you know, our children's toys or our toothbrushes or things like that, these, these types of devices, it doesn't, there's not a risk to patching them. But in the medical world, that changes things. Well, absolutely. So what are in, I, we, also, of course, need to highlight, we spoke a little bit about the EFF, but the group I Am the Cavalry has done a lot of work in this area. Are there areas that you see kind of, hey, this is next on the list. We really need to focus on this aspect or uh, kind of what's, what's next on the to-do list? What I see the medical world moving to is having these devices connect to the cell phones that people have. Uh, 
Um, there's a lot of really new and exciting technology that uses the cell phone to communicate this data back and forth. And I think one of the huge areas of research that we're going to see in the next couple years is in the area of Bluetooth communication and kind of examining that protocol and how those devices communicate using that standard. And I think that we'll see vulnerabilities come out of that and manufacturers and vendors are going to have to contend with how do they deal with that. Well, and too, it's as more and more, like, I feel like you get in the car now, it sinks to this, it sinks to that. I mean, are we going to get updates to the pacemaker or the cell phone and the news when we either come home to our IoT connected house or get in the car and convenience-wise, that seems great. It does. And, you know, I know some parents uh, that have diabetic children, and one of the new pieces of technology that they just love is this ability for to get every five minutes the blood sugar of their child, even when they're at school, even when they're at a sleepover at somebody's house. And they get this great peace of mind from being able to sync their phone to their child's device, um, no matter where their child's at. And that's awesome technology, but you also have to think about, you know, how all that information is secured and how those communications are secured. You wouldn't want to get a false alarm about that. Or um, the other thing that, that this technology is being used for is an artificial pancreas. So this artificial pancreas might transmit the blood sugar signals wirelessly and then a machine will make decisions based upon those numbers without human intervention. Now, are we comfortable with that? I mean, I, as much as I curse my laptop or some of my other devices, I don't know that I want to give them the ability to bite back. Well, in a lot of cases, especially this first generation of artificial pancreas type devices, they're being very conservative about when those decisions can be made and when they become automatic. Um, so it's really, it's really new and a lot of people are very uncomfortable with it because of exactly what you said. It's like the computer's going to make this decision here and I can't, I've been around computers long enough to know that maybe I can't trust them all the time to make their best decision. Um, well, I mean, Waze and my GPS have long, you know, fussed at me for Elizabeth. I told you to turn left. Recalculating. I, I just see this as I told you not to eat that extra piece of cake. Recalculating. You know, it, it's just going to be naughty. It could be, mean. you know, and, and uh, you know, in, in, I don't know how I don't know how I would react to that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I would sometimes I would say maybe I need that kind of advice. Um, you know, exactly save exactly. me from myself. But well, it, and you know, it, it's been fascinating to watch to the evolution of. I mean, I remember it, the initial pushback and. You know, if you're over, uh, your research in 2011, I feel like now is, is more and more people adapt to that responsible disclosure and responsible communication. Uh, 
I feel like they're, the companies are more willing to listen and adjust, be it because they're afraid they'll be sued. Uh, if they don't, I don't know. But uh, have you seen a shift in how the research and the disclosures are being conducted? I even? absolutely have. I think that because we've seen more success stories coming out of things like um, bug bounty programs and other people doing responsible disclosures that companies see that and they go, Oh, this doesn't always have to be a bad or negative thing. Um, so the more that we highlight those in the media and we see success stories where a researcher and a company will come out together and at the end of the day, patients are safer, people are safer, and the company looks like they have a good reputation and and they're being responsible to their consumers. Um, I think that more and more companies can will see that type of success and take that route instead of taking the legal cease and desist route or try and suppress that information from other people finding out. Now, inquiring minds want to know, When you were conducting this research and reporting the vulnerabilities, how many black hoodies (laughs) did you wear? What's really funny about that is I'm wearing a black hoodie right now. (laughs) Um, That's um, awesome. That is awesome. And did you do the research from the basement of your house? You know, there were times that I was in a basement, yes. So, I mean, I fill all the stereotypes. Like, uh, you know, I have several black hoodies and I do like... Uh, you know, a nice basement research environment. <laughs> that is awesome. Stereotype is you. I love it. But at the same time, I think attitudes are shifting. And so what are some of the things that you're working on next? I mean, you've broken all your medical devices. Uh are you going to buy the fancy new car just so you can break that? Or, I mean, what's next on Jay's well, right to-do now, list? What's next on my to-do list is I would really love to find a medical device company that I could do this type of research for full-time. Um, I really am passionate about that the medical space, and I really love uh, the idea of doing um, research that's going to make things safer for patients, that's going to make companies safer and, and more uh, producing safer devices that are more secure. So that that's kind of my goal to do right now is to find a company that uh, that wants to embrace my uh, my habit of getting in trouble and and use it use it to their advantage. Um, <laughs> I say you right. use your powers for good. It's who wouldn't want to embrace that? And so, where can people find some of your research and upcoming talks? Because I know. I'll have the pleasure, hopefully, of seeing you at DEF CON around the workshops, but, you know, you don't rest on your laurels. Where are some of the other upcoming um, projects? Probably the, you know, I have all of, a lot of my talks that I've done at conferences on the topic and, and various other topics like the scientific, using the scientific method. Those are up on YouTube and, and places that people know, like Iron Geek. Uh, has a, a site that has a lot of conference talks on it. You can search by my last name. I also have them all on my LinkedIn page. Um, and then there's also, you can follow me on Twitter, jradcliffe02 um, on Twitter. And, and that's probably where I would announce like where I'm going to be speaking next and, and different conferences that I'll be attending and and uh, where you can kind of find me and ask me questions. Oh, fantastic. And I truly 
Well, fantastic. And I truly thank you, Jay, for your time. And I encourage everyone to easiest place, uh, as Jay mentioned, on Twitter, jradcliffe02. But thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, you've been listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz. Follow me on Twitter as well, at Lawyer Liz. Until next time, americaswebradio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Are you-